This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast on The Times. I'm Matt Chorley. This week we talk comedy, tech and why we need a party of fruitcakes and nutters. First, last week we asked you to post reviews on iTunes telling us where you're listening to the podcast. So hello to Dugsy, who's listening in Japan. Uh, Tom Platzi, who listens to Red Box on his sunny veranda in Rajasthan. And also hello to the person who said they listened to the podcast on their commute to Liverpool Street. Uh, slightly less glamorous, but you're also welcome. Joining me this week, the only three people in the country who it seems haven't resigned as a front bench spokesman for UKIP. Uh, Matthew Moore, the Times media correspondent, asks why all the jokes are on the left. Polly McKenzie, former Lib Dem Downing Street policy chief and new head of the Demos think tank on regulating the future. But first, Times columnist Matthew Paris on the slow death of a political party. I never thought I'd say this, but I'm actually missing UKIP. I know, I know there's this idiotic apology for a remnant of UKIP still there. What, what's his name? Bolton and whoever Bolton's girlfriend or ex-girlfriend is or, or was. But they're, they're no threat. Real UKIP was a threat. We need a nasty, credible right-wing party for stick-in-the-muds and slightly nutty people to vote for. At the moment, the Tories are occupying this slot, alas. So it's been the sort of fun, most fun, if least consequential political story of the week, is the demise, it seems, of UKIP. Henry Bolton clinging on to what, what, whatever it is that he's clinging on to. It's not, yes. it's not well, totally clear. Maybe his girlfriend now. <laughs> <laughs> and then Meghan Markle comes into it, but I can't remember It's because the, how, girl, the girlfriend uh, was racist about oh, Meghan that's Markle. Right, yes. Yes, just, to, just to really unite. Um, all UKIP stories have to involve the royals in the end. But I do think the audience is wandering away. And we've got to have a right-wing party, and I'd, I'd always hoped it wouldn't be my own party, the Conservative Party. We're, we're kind of moving in to fill that gap. I don't like it. As we sort of maybe li- read the last rights for UKIP, do you think the influence that people ascribe to it is right, or is it overblown because Nigel Farage was such a good sort of PR man for himself in the party? I don't think it, it has any influence at all now, except to discredit whatever it touches, but... It did have influence, and you could argue that Brexit is Nigel Farage's personal work. In a way, it was. And I, at the time, 
used to worry about Conservatives leaving the party and joining UKIP, but now I I I've realised they've all come back again, and we're the, we're the worse for it. I, I I think that Britain actually does need to be semi-serious for a moment. Britain does need a proper, rather nationalist, seriously right-wing political party. And I don't think that's most of the Conservative Party, but it's some of us. And it would be better if someone could set up a respectable right-of-centre party and, and, and leave sensible Conservatives to be centrists. And so that was a role that was carried out by the BNP before they sort of died away and UKIP yeah. seemed to hoover a lot of them up. Yeah, but the BNP was never taken seriously. Mm. Uh, UKIP was taken quite seriously and, and indeed make, made serious dents into Conservative support. I saw it, um, or see it now, as a kind of, like you put a poultice onto a festering wound to draw off the sepsis. And I felt that uh, UKIP was performing that useful role for the Conservative Party, and it's not there any longer. So, so Polly, um, as a Lib Dem, do you mourn the demise of UKIP? I think Matthew's got a point, really, of, of what the, the demise of UKIP is doing to the Conservative Party, except that it's actually a deliberate strategy by the Conservative Party to move into that space. You know, Theresa May could uh, have adopted a different approach on Brexit that wasn't you know, the, this red, white and blue Brexit that tried to appeal to centrists. But she made a really deliberate decision to actually be offensive to anybody who voted Remain and anybody who might have considered themselves even right of centre and certainly left of centre. She's actually she's pulling herself over to the right to try and take those votes because there was this electoral consideration, particularly in 2015, that that was the way for the Conservatives to get a majority. It worked in 2015, didn't work in 2017, was to to destroy UKIP and adopt them. And what troubles me as a centrist, a moderate, is that over on the left, the same has happened again, which is that the leadership have taken a deliberate decision to stretch as far to the left as they possibly can. I mean, what's the point in even being a member of the Socialist Workers' Party these days when you've got Jeremy Corbyn in charge? And you just have this gaping maw where in the middle everyone just looks a bit hopeless, desperate and and short of ideas. I'd never use the word deliberate strategy and Conservative (laughs) Party in the same sentence. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and just on, on your time, because the, the, in a way the, the rise of UKIP and its popularity when it won the European elections in 2014 got 4 million votes in 2015, it did coincide with the dramatic collapse in support for the Lib Dems. And although on Europe you also take completely different views, there was this sort of sense that one was replacing the other as the sort of... The, the, the container of the disaffected and the I'm protest sh- I'm votes. I'm sure that that's true. Because, it, yeah, like you say, the disaffected, the protest vote, the we just hate this system, we want something to change, anybody but the the establishment. And for a long time, the Liberal Democrats, because they hadn't been in government for 50 or 80 years, depending on you how you count, could absorb all of that sort of uh, none of the above sentiment. And by campaigning locally, you know, whether it was in Colchester about, you know, bol- bollards in Colchester or bollards in Falmouth in Falmouth, that is how Liberal Democrats campaigned. And UKIP could absorb that once the Liberal Democrats, by going into government, just became, in many ways, another face of the establishment. Matt, to what extent do you think that this, this UKIP story is just the lobby having like, one last bender on this on this at this circus, if you can have benders at circuses, uh, before you know, to the total disinterest of any normal person no, looking I think, in? I think everyone enjoys this theatre. There's something very <laughs> there's something very human about this tragedy with the girlfriend and the ex wife and the and sex the and the, and the, and the sex and the middle aged man. I, I wonder whether sort of this is how all populist movements end up, because you look in the US where Bannon, sort of who's Farage's equivalent, um, has 
had his moment in the sun, backed the right horse, got into the White House, uh, left very quickly, insulted Trump and has become now a sort of marginal, peripheral, slightly tragic figure. And it's the one thing that does kill off populist movements is when they get their way, they get into power, they win a referendum. Where do you go next with that anger? Where do you, when it dissipates? Do you know, you're absolutely right. I'm just thinking, uh, the Peronists in Argentina, and it all ended up with Eva Peron and all that kind of stuff. The Progressive Party in Denmark, Mogens Glistrup, all ended up with him becoming a comedy Mm -hmm. figure. You're right. Well, and, and where is this now the start of a new era of, of moderation and centrism again? Is this burst that happened in the world, across the world, over the last three years, this populist surge, are we now beginning to see it recede? Are normal politics going to begin again soon? Um, possibly, I don't know. There's also what happens when, because populism is, is by its very nature often very simplistic, we'll just do it and it's all mm-hmm. going to be great. And what Trump has found in America is it's not... You know, running the country is a bit more complicated than that. Getting, you can't just get what you want through mm-hmm. uh, the Senate. And in the same way that Brexit turns out to be much more complicated than we were necessarily led to believe. You know, Five Star in Italy has had similar problems when it starts having to do things mm. uh, in in reality. That um, probably running running a government is complicated. As, in- as the Lib Dems found. Yes, it, it's incredibly complicated. Um, and when you have overpromised, as some might argue the Lib Dems did in 2010, and then you underdeliver, the question is, what does that what does that do to, to sentiment? Because I think I, I think it's absolutely right that populists lose their charm and their sparkle once they go into government. Do people sort of wise up and say, oh yeah, I should have I should have voted for those people who said it was complicated, or? Does it get worse? Do people mm-hmm. get more and more angry? You know, one yeah. of my biggest concerns about Brexit is that we've just got to this point where it might not be a disaster at best. Instead of <laughs> we, we were promised sunlit uplands and all of this money, and that the NHS would be would be filled and there wouldn't be any crime anymore, and surely people are going to be furious when eventually that dawning realisation that none of that good stuff is happening. The question is, where does that anger go? Does it go to moderation? I hope so. But I fear that it might go to more populism because the centrists, the the moderates, haven't got much to say for themselves yet. I have to say, I think that things would be different. And the trouble is there isn't an obvious actual candidate. But if the current Prime Minister was a lever who did talk the message of Sunlit Uplands instead of this sort of moderating between Hammond and Boris all the time. It's just a great big bureaucratic exercise. It might slightly change the mood. But anyway, before we move on, does anyone want to pick their favourite UKIP? If we are calling the demise of UKIP. Hugo Rifkin's written in The Times this week, an absolutely terrific column, taken up almost entirely with a list of their, their greatest hits, whether it's the, the guy who ran for the leadership who thought his horse had been raped by a gay donkey. <laughs> the I mean, Paul Nuttall alone, I declared in the red box, uh, politician of the hero of the year uh, just before Christmas because of his... Well, partly because he helped bring about the demise of UKIP, but also his ability to keep on just creating news, not least with his CV and making up that he'd lost people at Hillsborough. And then when he was caught out with that, he went on TV and said, well, I've not been caught in a paedophile gang or anything. So has anybody got any particular UKIP favourite moments? That moment when Farage resigned because he'd promised to and then unresigned about three and a half minutes later... For me, just exposed that he's just a charlatan and he's all in it for himself. The UKIP Calypso, do you remember? The UKIP Calypso, I do remember. And that's where the 350 million for the NHS first gained prominence. Is it? Yes, yes. Because Mike Reed, the former DJ, Mm. recorded a song about UKIP in a Caribbean accent. That's right, (laughs) and they had to drop it quickly. Leaders committed a cardinal sin. Open the borders, let them all come in. 
Illegal immigrants in every town Stand up and be counted Blair and Brown Oh yes, when we take charge And the new Prime Minister is Farage We can trade with the world again When Nigel is at number 10 and so finally, Matt. Well, it's not been not a funny one so much, but um, I think uh, the fact of Farage being photographed going into the Ecuadorian embassy a year ago, whenever it was, I think that ultimately might turn out to be one of the most interesting things about UKIP over the last few years. What happened there? What what conduit he provided? So that's something I'd be I'd be interested to read more about. And it, that is where my, uh, Nigel Farage becoming a person of interest in the mm-hmm. Russia you, probe. You don't think he might become a an asylum seeker and take refuge. What, Farage? Yes. You've got a whole oh, please, let's lock him in the Ecuadorian episode. Oh, oh, you know that if he did, he'd make sure he had an ISDN line so he could still do endless <laughs> appearances on uh, LBC and uh, the Today programme. Um, I do thoroughly recommend Hugo um, Rifkin's piece because it is particularly good. It's got um, women as sluts for not cleaning behind the fridge, Bongo Bongo Land, Neil <laughs> Hamilton blaming gays for floods. Uh, people selling gollywogs in shops all of it it's well worth well worth a look normally I would say well, I'm sure it's an issue we'll come back to but this might be the last time we ever discuss you <laughs> um, uh, until Henry Bolton is in here doing an interview about his racist girlfriend right uh, let's move on and this is Polly McKenzie technology and how to regulate it is dominating more and more of our political debate but It seems to me that whether it's Bitcoin, encryption, facial recognition or machine learning, most of our politicians are actually flying blind. And that's a huge risk that could land us just as easily with too little regulation as too much. It does feel like this is one of these massive issues which is emerging with AI and uh, artificial intelligence and robots and all that. But we're not talking about it because we spend all of our time talking about... (laughs) Henry Bolton. (laughs) Henry Bolton and Brexit, I was going to uh, call it. Oh, yes, that too. Interestingly, we're told that when Theresa May goes to Davos later this week, she's going to talk about the ethics of AI and robots. Just so she doesn't have to talk about anything else. (laughs) (laughs) They've got that, they've crossed everything else off. Uh, If it wasn't that, she was going to talk about the weather. Um, So what what do you think, Polly, that politicians should be doing? Well, I'm, actually, it's not just politicians. I think there's this huge gap that has opened up between politicians on one side and technologists on the other. If you think back to when um, Amber Rudd sort of had a go at encryption and then everyone just sort of laughed at her because she used as WhatsApps her, herself, and the technologists all just sort of laughed at her and pilloried her for not really understanding what she was talking about, instead of actually accepting that they're doing stuff which, at a certain level, they barely understand. The need to explain and go through the process of educating our politicians, because when politicians lash out against against new technologies without really understanding how they work, uh, they can cause serious harm. Demos launched last night um, the first in a kind of series of technology education projects that um, that we're doing, starting with looking at child sex abuse images and how they are how they're shared online, because you know. You will so often hear politicians saying that YouTube or Google or Facebook ought to do this, that and the other without taking the time to understand what the technology is capable of. You know, the vast volumes of uh, of data that's uploaded, exactly how technology can spot things that are child sex abuse or Islamic State terrorism and, and filter them. And I think we just need to bridge this gap and get people together instead of 
on the one side, the politicians saying it is the end of day, social media is the cause of all harm, it's the cause of all misery and we'll all just, you know, uh, they're a bunch of tax evaders. And on the other hand, the technologists saying politicians are stupid, so we're just going to ignore you. The politicians never understand, really, what they're talking about. They can't, they can't, <laughs> they can't really be experts. I guess you know, I'm they're, just, no, they're not they experts. They talk about agriculture can... and they don't know much about that. They talk about science and don't know much about that. They're supposed to be generalists. And, and I would have thought that the danger... Is, is of doing what you suggested at the outset, which is tr trying to legislate at this point for an emerging technology, uh, particularly artificial uh, intelligence, where, where we simply don't know what's going to happen or where it's going to go. It's, I think we ought to just kind of sit back and let it all wash over. Let, let, let's see what happens. Well, I think politicians aren't necessarily very good at that. Mm. Uh, and and they, see, they see harm. You know, we have this massive rise in anxiety among young women. We have a massive rise in the use of social media by young women. And lots of people instantly turn to a, a belief that, that the two are, are causally linked rather than necessarily just correlated. When there are women increasingly self-harming, and, and we do need to consider how we take action, without investing in the research and the uh, understanding of what that causal pathway might be, um, the politicians will just they'll just turn to regulation. I think there's, um, there's a big debate now in the media sector about whether the tech giants like Google and Facebook uh, and Twitter should be reclassified from um, platforms to publishers, mm. making them take greater responsibility um, for their own content in the way that Channel 4 or the BBC or the Times has to. And that idea is sort of in vogue at the moment there's lots of politicians calling for it but I think there's like an emerging opinion is that these companies are not platforms that's correct but they're not really publishers in the way we understand that either there's something in the middle that requires a new specific law and quite detailed understanding of what exactly it is these companies do the threats they pose and how that's best restricted and it's difficult to see whether the government has the intellectual headspace to deal with that at the mm. moment because these are forensically difficult problems and with Brexit there's there, it's not the focus of the government when perhaps it should be um, so but well, there was a story in the sun um, yesterday uh, where they'd done some mystery shopping basically and, and shown that you know you could have up to 50% increase in your insurance premiums if your name was Mohammed I haven't looked at their research methodology but it's fascinating to see how algorithms are driving decisions and there are other countries in which those algorithms have to be submitted to regulators and they have to be transparent we don't have any ability to even see kind of under the hood of the car in order to actually educate the politicians and uh, of course because it won't be the politicians who have the most detailed understanding the regulators the civil servants who are putting the proposals upwards there's also an issue as well isn't there matt where this sort of Silicon Valley mindset is that they are transnational. They don't mm. answer to uh, any particular government. Mm. They they are new. Uh, as a result, politicians are a bit nervous, or they have been mm. up until quite recently, about sort of being seen to criticise them because they you know they've, they're trendy people on hoverboards in open plan offices and all that sort of thing. And I mean, I know even as a journalist, if you want to get a quote from mm. Facebook or Google or Amazon, you can't. You can't find a phone number or an email address no. like you could for a bank or a supermarket or whatever because they feel that they're three or four years ago. These organisations were were entirely opaque to much of the, of the population, which worked in their favour. They were seen as they had they had the magic recipe, the magic sauce. They knew what they were doing, a grand vision that would help everyone. And media coverage of the tech giants five years ago was was hugely positive. Um, people thought they sort of had the solutions to so many of the world's problems. Now it's gone entirely the other way. People are, are critical and sceptical. And there's a, 
big difference in how these companies are engaging. Google in particular has been uh, more willing to admit its errors, more willing to describe exactly what it's doing and, and, and brief journalists on that detail. Um, Facebook and Twitter are much more opaque organisations still. Um, legislators on both sides of, of, of the Atlantic have struggled to get them to engage with or, uh, with issues around fake news and, and dubious content. Uh, and we've seen last week Facebook said it's going to respond to the fake news row by basically giving readers and users less news, giving them more cat photos and holiday photos instead, which seems like a retreat rather than an engagement. I, I think I, it's uh, it probably just an acceptance of, of, of what's happening. What we haven't talked about here is the, the, the ordinary public's attitude to these media platforms. And there's plenty of evidence that people are beginning to think that you can't believe what you read on, on social media. You can't believe what you read on Facebook. That, that is the best antidote in the end. The public just get wise to stuff. And actually, there was an Edelman Trust performance about just this week which mm. showed exactly that. It was about a quarter of people said so they trusted what they read on social media. Mm. Yeah, and just I think 24% of people now trust the, the tech giants uh, and uh, respect for traditional media has increased as people yeah, look yeah, for yeah, yeah, reliable yeah, yeah. brands <laughs> like the Times. But then your point, Polly, is this isn't just about what we see as sort of social media companies is that every business now has a website and they are using tech to target customers, to inform decisions you know through ai or through algorithms or whatever and if we don't know what they're doing for some people then they, they then feel there's a need for the government to step in well it's massive in insurance um where we don't really understand how insurance decisions are made but it's also you know bitcoin and you know the bitcoin bubble and it's it's facial recognition technology which you know is being used in china we know and it's probably has the capability to be used here to really spot you where you are in the street based on the biometrics that you've submitted and i, I don't think anybody's really understanding how far we could be in five years and where the regulators need to even just start a conversation uh, one of my favorite stories um of this week was the uh, shop which had a robot which stood by the door to welcome <laughs> people in and the hope of increasing custom and it proved very popular to start with and then for some reason they got it to start handing out meat and um, it turned out that people were less willing to take pulled pork from a robot than they were from a real person so the, the robot's been fired it's been set in the back of the shop uh, so i don't know what that means in and the it's, end it's a measure of how our attitudes are changing that when i read that story this morning i felt just for a moment a twinge of sympathy for the robot and thought poor robot it wasn't its fault and then i had to remind myself no matthew it's a robot but I think I think the, the flaw in that plan was that people don't like being handed meat when they walk into a shop by anyone. It was it a meat shop? It's, I don't think it was like a, a sort of department store. I think. Oh. How are you supposed to take the meat? Is, is are you handed the I pork? Think about, yeah, I yeah, wonder yeah. if they and would have just... trusted a table. I just don't think people want to have meat thrust no, upon no. them in shops. I'm a big one for free samples. I'm anti-meat. I think it's I think it's the meat fault, not the robot's fault. I feel like we've cleared that one up. Uh, <laughs> in a moment, we'll be talking about why are there no right-wing comics. Uh, we'll be back after this short break. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome back. You're listening to the Times Red Box podcast. I'm joined by Polly McKenzie, Matthew Paris, and this is Matt Moore. Are Donald Trump jokes starting to wear thin? Do satirists give David Davis a harder time than Giva Hofstadt? That's the view of the founders of a new free-thinking comedy night intended as an antidote to the liberal and left-wing humour of Radio 4 panel shows. But can right-wing comedy really be funny? And do all taboos really need to be shattered? Now, I find this really interesting. In the past, we've done some comedy specials of the podcast. We've had comedians on where they talk about it, about the the, the natural inclination of, of comedians and why that, that happens. So it was interesting. You wrote about this in The Times last mm-hmm. week, this this comedy night that's launched. Yeah, so it's launching uh, next month, actually, uh, in the East End at the Backyard Comedy Club. And the idea behind it, um, this comedian and a writer have come up with it, is that orthodox mainstream liberal comedy that you hear on Radio 4 or you go to on the stand-up uh, comedy circuit comes with a set of assumptions and they are that Donald Trump is an idiot, uh, that Brexit is bad and being bungled and that Daily Mail readers or Daily Mail ideas are are inherently laughable. Um, And I think they're probably correct in that diagnosis. Um, If you listen to to Radio 4 panel shows and you hold some of those opinions, it's probably quite an unwelcoming place. Um, The danger is, though, um, that a, a show that is set up just to provoke could become very dreary or very adolescent uh, quite quickly so they now need to prove that unorthodox anti-pc challenging comedians can be funny without being tedious Uh, i'm I'm not sure that it's a left-wing right-wing thing i I wonder whether it isn't just that losers always have the best jokes (laughs) and it isn't so easy for winners to have the best jokes i mean donald trump is president of the united states Uh, we are leaving the european Union, uh, it's great railing against those things. Well, I think this is the question. The best comedy punches up, but now it's hard to know where up is. So yeah. Trump and May, they are our leaders. They are the ones we the satire would, would seem to direct us to mock. Um, however, the people behind this club night would argue that actual the cultural power is held by middle class, metropolitan, guardian reading, liberals who work at the BBC. And actually, that's the cultural force in Britain that we need to be satirising. And I think that will ring true with a lot of people um, who hold maybe slightly right of centre views um, and don't feel that there is currently a place for them uh, in the comedy circuit. I, I don't think Matthew's um, hypothesis is it quite holds water because if if you could only punch up, there would be a lot more women stand-up comedians. You know, women are historically the, the marginalised gender and uh, women don't seem to be able to make it in, in stand-up comedy anywhere near as many numbers as they should. Maybe do. they aren't very good at it. Maybe maybe that's the case. Do you think there was, there was an interesting study that we had last week or the week before in Redbox about people who have political ambition and who were more likely to put themselves forward as a candidate. And men were much more likely to put themselves forward. Well-off, middle-class, white men were much more likely to put themselves forward than any other group. 
and so then that that's a real challenge then to people who, who rightly say well we do need more women in politics or you know if you do need we should have more women in comedy but there are just few i just i mean i just know more blokes who are show-offs of which i'd probably include yeah. myself in them, <laughs> yeah who would put themselves forward to be comedians well so it may also be the case then that just left-wing people are more funny maybe right-wing people who either because they're successful investment bankers the last thing they want to do is <laughs> schlep around to leicester on the stand-up circuit or because they're just hateful people who like to persecute disabled and black people i don't know they're just not very funny on your point about women shirley williams once told me that years ago when she Shirley was a minister she was in the uh, ladies sitting room at the House of Commons with Margaret Thatcher who was also uh, on her way up but not up and Margaret Thatcher congratulated her on her speech and she said thank you and Margaret said we must never let them win and Shirley said what do you mean and she said men she said to men politics is a game to us it is destiny and, and perhaps there is just a intrinsically more serious-minded approach to politics and public affairs by women than there is by by men we, we do see it as a bit of a game sometimes well i mean it's sometimes it's really very funny as henry bolton <laughs> has, um, uh, just to bring us back to the beginning but you know um we see uh, aisha hazarika who has done a brilliant job i think kind of launching herself out you know mocking and uh, and lampooning not just uh, right of centre opinions but actually also the existence of the Labour Party all the ridiculous experiences that she had operating with the, the pink bus and uh, I think there's, there is something inherently mockable about all of the institutions of political power One, one thing I mean I, I find particularly when I'm writing my, my Saturday column or writing the Red Box email in the morning I don't, I don't have a particular problem with finding funny ways of taking the mickey out of Jeremy Corbyn or Tim Farron or Vince Cable or but, but because the country is being run by the right at the mm-hmm. moment, you end up in the same way that political journalists write about them more. There's more they do more stuff, which is noticed by more people, so it's easier for, to sort of send them up. I think there's certainly some truth to that, but I think there possibly are individuals and groups uh, within our politics that don't get the, the, the skewering uh, that Theresa May or David Davis or, or Boris Johnson get. Uh, the one point the people behind this comedy night made was that Guy Verhofstadt, Michael Barnier, Donald Tusk are very funny people potentially. There's a lot of material there. Verhofstadt is, a, is an eccentric, interesting man who likes classic car riding and is not, a, not, not unopposed to the sound of his own voice. And you it's harder to get a laugh about him than the reflexive laugh that you get if you make a joke because about him. Because people don't so people, know people any of that. I mean, but that's, that's practically news to me. And I'm a <laughs> you know, that's why. It's because it's so much easier to mock people who are familiar to your audience. Although it's interesting, when we had we had Jan Ravens on last summer, who does uh, terrific Diane Abbott and Theresa May impressions on Dead Ringers and that sort of thing, and she said she wants, wanted to do a sketch about Christine Lagarde and was told by a producer, no, we can't do that. You know, Beryl in Barnsley won't know who Christine Lagarde is. She said, well, that's, that's part of our job. If you're on, if you're doing satire, you have to, or, you know, there's, there's an element of education and, and introducing people to those things. And I'm still, I'm still not convinced about a comedy night where Guy Verhofstadt <laughs> is the sort of main... I, uh, I, I want to hear a joke about Malala. I want to hear a joke about yeah. people who have such a saintly reputation yes. that you don't actually sort of get the chance to... Now, to, what, to what, in yes. what point... The... the, the I take your point, and I think a good joke is a good joke, and it could be about anyone. The danger is that when people say, oh, we you know, we need a counterbalance to the left, what they mean is, actually, it ends up being jokes about disabled people or race, or and it's just offensive yeah, but for the sake of it. OK, but Jeremy Corbyn, John McDonnell are absolutely ripe for absolutely, sat- yeah, yeah, yeah. satirising, and there isn't an awful lot of it at the moment. 
I think a few years ago, Alan Corrin was that voice on radio. He provided the yeah. curmudgeonly but humane yes. right of centre, the man who was slightly fed up with the way the world was going, but still um, sort of loved everyone in it. And I don't think such a voice has emerged yet. Um, Simon Evans is one name that the BBC point to as, as, a, as a regular panel show guest who is... Uh, not from sort of the liberal orthodox position. Our own Hugo Rifkind has, has been on these shows before. So there are a diverse range of voices, um, but there's probably the more, that, more that can be done. Well, it's interesting. I still I look forward to finding out what this Guy for Hofstadt joke is. <laughs> it's going to bring... That could be a... Uh, it's going to be... Maybe if, anybody, if anybody's got a Guy for Hofstadt joke... <laughs> got to have a prize Then uh, send it in, redbox at thetimes.co.uk. Uh, I've got one or two red box mugs left. So if anybody can come up with a good Guy for Hofstadt joke, <laughs> uh, we'll, um, I'll show it with you next week and the winner can get a red box mug. Huge thanks um, to my guests. As ever, like I said, do get in touch with us. You can also tweet us at Times Red Box. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and post a, post a review there tell us where you're listening uh, and sign up to my morning email briefing go to the times.co.uk forward slash red box but for now from polly mckenzie matthew paris matthew moore and me matt Cholly, it's goodbye thank you for downloading to discover more head to the times.co.uk This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.